This is Back to Excitement with your hosts, Arvind and Acting the Fool from Pension Plan Puppets. Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 137. My name is Arvind. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Foolman. Hi, everybody. How are you doing, Foolman? I am none too shabby. How about yourself? Yeah, not bad. Uh, weird having a Leafs weekly schedule where it's Friday, Sunday. Yeah, I'll never quite wrap my head around that, even on Easter weekend. It just feels like a misalignment with the universe. Mm. On the other hand, we should be thankful that uh, Adidas didn't decide to put out like special Easter Leafs jerseys, which would undoubtedly also look terrible. <laughs> yeah, well, it might be a, an opportunity to do something fun, right? You know, get the Easter bunny on there or something, like really diversify the uh, the jersey profile for the Leafs. Yeah, I, I can't get over how bad our reverse retros are. I think they're bad. I'm not going to say that they're good, but I feel like there are worse ones. Like, Detroit's was appalling. Okay, yes, there are worse ones, but that's true for, you know, 30 teams. (laughs) There are 30 teams for which there is a worse one, right? Yeah, that's true. And I think you and El Soto, friend of the pod, uh, raised this point where, like, the Leafs actually don't have that much to work with jersey-wise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they've always had that basic problem where it's, okay, you have the blue, the white, the basic logo... You can't really organically shoehorn a third color in there because they're so definitively associated with the blue and white color scheme. And so when they get their jerseys, it's bringing back like the St. Pat's or whatever, which I've always thought looked like they were being sponsored by some sort of spearmint gum company. They look terrible. <laughs> so Yeah, it's a bit like uh, having the Yankees do a reverse retro jersey. Like it's hard to think of what that could be because it's so... Um, so classic in a sense Mm -hmm. there's no there's no real room to change it without really fundamentally changing the jersey um that does not excuse the fact that adidas decided a third color to go with this would be gray yeah i don't know what the end game was there like i really do not think that there was any visual upside to making that decision also the blue lettering and numbering on a blue um jersey was a take that was a that was a you know a choice that they made <laughs> yeah they're hard to read too so it's like yeah, even it's, on a utilitarian perspective of can these help me identify the players they're not all that great i i have literally um signed up for a recap at ppp mm-hmm. then checked to see what jerseys we were using and i saw we were using the reverse retros and i immediately said okay i'm not recapping that <laughs> i just moved to the next game instead <laughs> yeah i mean you gotta know what you're gonna put up with and i think it's good that no one's gonna put up with those reverse retros but, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, today we were planning on discussing, uh, I guess, playoff matchups. Uh, the NHL season is really devoid of any interesting playoff races. Um, certainly in the North, but I think in most other divisions, it's like there's at most one spot per division that's kind of up for grabs. Mm-hmm. Um, in the North, there's essentially zero. Right. I, I can pull up the the probabilities uh, now where. In the North, yeah, Toronto's at basically 100%. Winnipeg and Edmonton are 97%. Montreal's 91%. This is all by hockey viz. And then Calgary's at 10%. Vancouver's at 5%. Ottawa's at 0.3%. So, you know, Calgary has a really outside shot, and it pretty much is entirely based on the probability that they go on a big run, and mm-hmm. Montreal uh, really, really struggles. There are a lot of Montreal-Calgary games coming up. I think there's five more left in the season. So if Montreal uh, loses all of those, and Calgary, you know, obviously wins all of those, then, okay, maybe it's interesting. But even in that scenario, Montreal will have a higher points percentage than Calgary. That's kind of staggering that the gap is that large. Mm-hmm. For a division that we all said, to start at least, there was kind of a big 
grab bag of teams between second and sixth. I think everyone was confident that Toronto was probably going to finish first, or at least what should be favored, and Ottawa was going to finish last. But Vancouver really played itself right out within six mm-hmm. weeks. And obviously now they're dealing with a COVID outbreak, so their first priorities are much more significant than hockey itself. And then Calgary has had this malaise to them where they've just been stuck in the mud and changing coaches didn't really seem to fix it. And they're done. They're the team I was definitely the most wrong about. Like my take at the start of the season, most of them are okay. Calgary, I just did not think was like this. Exactly. Uh, I'm in exactly the same boat. So, yeah, we're going to just talk about the three other teams in the division, how we feel the Leafs would match up with them in a playoff series. Um, Seeding right now is quite a bit up for grabs. Um, I'm looking at Hockey Vista's first-round matchups things as well. And the Leafs currently have a 37% chance of of facing Montreal, 28% of Winnipeg, 25% of Edmonton, and then 7% of Calgary, 3% of Vancouver, which actually seems high, but that's basically their entire, you know, that's the entire probability of each of those two teams making the playoffs more or less mm-hmm. right or it's close to it um so let's go uh i guess uh with the the team that'll probably be freshest in people's mind because mm-hmm. we have just played them uh the winnipeg jets yes so the winnipeg jets have four basic things going for them first one is that their stat profile is of a team that is bad bad and expected goals below averaging Corsi and scoring chances they get outplayed and i think that that's definitively true now they have strong goaltending this is the second point and a tendency towards rush chances now we we know rush chances are more likely to become goals than ordinary static chances you know uh you can see why Nikolai Ehlers zooming off on a two-on-one is a more dangerous proposition than the average thing that you get at when you're set up in the zone still though I'm not sure how far that that gets them now, they do have good finishers in the top six, again, especially Ehlers. Guys like Kyle Connor, who can obviously score. Uh, Mark Shifley, who is an offensive dynamo. And then the fourth thing is their defense group is one of the worst in the NHL. Yes, and I remember seeing an, uh, a piece in The Athletic by Pierre Lebrun. <clears throat> um, and he was, it was like discussing the Jets, and uh, he had uh, and, and he detailed a phone conversation, conversation with Kevin Chevaldeoff. And LeBron, um, you know, commented to Chevaldeoff, like, okay, you know, your, your team defense isn't, uh, hasn't been that good, more or less, or, you know, said something to that effect, politer, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and LeBron noticed, like, noted that uh, Chevaldeoff was probably rolling his eyes behind the phone because he must hear this a lot. And Chevaldeoff gave an answer that was like, you know, we, our team, maybe we don't have the most heralded defense, but doggone it, they do their best. Um, something to that effect but the overwhelming impression I got and remember I'm a Leafs fan I'm someone who's an expert in management talking about bad defenses (laughs) the impression I got from Chevaldeoff is like yeah our defense fucking blows (laughs) even he knows and and, and we we are relying on Connor Halbuck to do a lot for us yeah and that and it's not even necessarily Chevaldeoff's fault um I'm sure certainly, you know, a Jets fan could probably point to some things he could have done better. Mm -hmm. But they also had just some quite bad luck with how things have gone. You know, they developed a a pretty good defenseman in Jacob Truba, who, um, for non-hockey reasons, wanted to live in the U.S. and wanted to, I believe, support his, uh, either his fiance or his wife's career as a doctor of some kind. Mm -hmm. um, And wanted to go to, like, a a New, New York area or something like that. So can't really do a whole lot about that. 
they had Dustin Bufflin basically just retire on him. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's that's losing, you know, two top pair guys, more or less. Yeah, and so they were left with Josh Morrissey, who is uh, about as sad as songs about the actual Morrissey, because he is, like, the only named defenseman left. And, he's and Morrissey really himself, struggling. yeah, he, he's regressed. I, I know I follow some Jets fans who, who say that Morrissey is coasting on the reputation he had a few years ago and that, like, if the Jets were a really smart team, they would actually not protect him in the upcoming expansion draft. Yeah, that would be bold. I mean, <laughs> I think you quietly pursue trading him or at least, you know, let it be known that he's on the table. I don't think that you expose him if you can avoid it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I can't say I follow their roster and their, um, I guess, prospect system, which is what matters here as well, close enough to know exactly who they should protect. I think the argument is that, like, Seattle probably won't even pick him up because Seattle is, at least by name and by reputation and who they've hired at this point, seem to be a really, really stat-forward uh, team. That's the thing. And, and I know that, you know, maybe you're protecting some other guy who's on the way up, but I don't think the Jets have enough guys that they really need to fret about who to protect, frankly. <laughs> don't worry, guys. Your team sucks. Yeah, yeah. doesn't want anything. What are they going to do? Take, like, I don't know. <laughs> Sammy Niku, I guess. Yeah, I guess Sammy Niku is, like, kind of interesting. Hanola should be exempt. And then there's, like, Logan Stanley, who is... 6'7". Yeah, he's a little, little known fact. Logan Stanley is 6'7". I've never heard anyone mention this. <laughs> I remember when he got drafted, Scott Wheeler tweeted, the Jets just used a first-round pick on a player whose ceiling is third-pair defenseman. And I saw the entire city of Winnipeg online get mad at him. But that's how it's been so far. Anyway, that's uh, zooming in a little bit. But the Jets' defense is bad. And I think that that is borne out. The team defensively, not that good. The team's defensive personnel, not that good. They have some players who are, let's say, offensively focused in Shifley and Connor. Uh, Connor has been sort of infamous for having atrocious defensive results basically his whole career. Um, there's a question of how much of that is on him as an offensive winger on a team that is generally pretty bad, but still. And the question for the Winnipeg Jets is how sustainable do you think it is? to be outshot, outchanced, uh, kind of outplayed in the possession sense most nights. Sometimes by a decent margin. And they're well positioned to survive doing that. But I don't think that's the same as it being a good plan. Yeah, I, I think that's a fair way to put it. Um, I also want to point out that Blake Wheeler, who had you know a, a run as one of the best uh, forwards of any kind, in the mm-hmm. league, but especially someone who is fairly good defensively as well, to at least to my eye and to, from what I remember of the stats, he's had a, a brutal come down. And defensively, if you look at this year alone, his numbers are just horrific. And mm-hmm. that's not something that uh, I think a lot of people have, or at least a lot of people in, in the mainstream discussion of, of the Jets have really internalized. Uh, I'm sure, you know, in Jets, you know, stats, fan circles, uh, this has been discussed a lot. The Jets actually have, you know, a very, uh, from what I've seen, a very large contingent of their online fan base that is uh, heavily into analytics and, you know, helped actually develop some of the cutting edge of of analytics back in the early days. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, it's, you know, it becomes a problem when you're a team built around elite forwards and some of those forwards start taking a step back, which seems to be the case with, with Wheeler to a degree. You could kind of draw a line between some of the strictures that Winnipeg has to operate under 
as a franchise in maybe a less desirable free agent market. And some of the outcomes on this team, and I think Wheeler is one of them, because Wheeler is a very respected guy in their dressing room, um, you know, a team leader in all respects. And obviously they loved him. They wanted to keep him. They viewed him as sort of a, a heart of the franchise guy. And the result was they gave him five years at $8.25 million on a deal that they signed when he was 32. And that went into effect when he was 33. He still got three years after this one on it um, that are going to take him into his mid to late 30s, into a period where, realistically, you had to know age was probably going to catch up with him. Right. And yet I, I see how they came to make that decision, maybe even being aware, look, he's going to slow down, he's going to get worse, but we need to keep people who want to stay and who are good. So, yeah, I, I think that certainly we're calling the Jets a kind of not very good team, frankly, in the course of this segment. And I do just want to point out that some of the decisions that they've made to get here have factors that maybe you don't worry about as much if you're... Uh, a team located in a, a sort of a bigger name market or what have you. Yes. Um, basically, to sum up the Jets, they are they lead the league in the difference between their 5-on-5 uh, five five expected goals for percentage and 5-on-5 five five goals for percentage. Mm-hmm. Um, you can justifiably believe that that number for them should be positive. Like, they should have a higher goals for percentage than expected goals for percentage. But... You know, it's a much harder argument to say, yeah, they should be actually the very highest in the league. Mm-hmm. Right? And the problem with them is that they kind of need to be at that level because um, if they have, let's say, if they have a 3% difference between their goals for percentage and expected goals for percentage instead of a 6% difference, which is what they're currently at, mm-hmm. six and a half actually, they become a quite below average 5 on 5 team. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so so it, it it comes down to that, like how how realistic is this to sustain? And that's that's of course the magic question, the million dollar question that everyone when they're forecasting a team that appears to be better than its stats, that that's what you have to try and figure out. And I mean, the the easy cop out answer is somewhere between zero and six point six uh, percentage points of difference. Yeah, uh, it's just a question of how good a strategy do you believe that it is to operate the way that they do. And I buy that they're about as well set up as they probably could be to win this way, short of having Connor McDavid. Like, they definitely lean into this a little bit, and I think that, you know, some of it may even be forced on them by the fact that their defense is so bad. But I do not think that it is a good strategy in the sense of if you're doing this, you're probably losing. Like, when I did a preview of them this week, I was looking at the bottom 10 teams in XG and nine of them were out of playoff spots. And the 10th one was Winnipeg. Like they were the only team that was overcoming it to this extent, which should make us skeptical that it's a good thing to be doing, even if they can pull it off. Now I think people are scared of the jets as a playoff matchup for the Leafs because it's so easy to imagine how they win. Right. We see it at least one series every year. Yeah. And it's basically Connor Hellebuck stands on his head, the Jets get scoring at the right times, and then the Leafs are left complaining we got PDO'd. Because the Leafs, Never heard that one before. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what would that even sound like? And that's a scary prospect. You know, we can certainly envision that happening uh, through painful experience, but at the same time, that doesn't mean that that's the most likely outcome. 
I don't think. Like, I'm scared of the prospect of losing in the first round to anybody. But the more I look at it, the more I see this team as basically they're flying by the seat of their pants. And it will almost certainly be enough to make the playoffs. And they could be a tough out for anybody in the series. But I do not believe that they're one of the best three teams in the division. Yeah, I I agree with that. They're the team I would want to face most in the playoffs just because I think they are the worst at the most important part of the game, which is 5-on-5. Um, five five. Mm-hmm. Their power play, I don't have a great handle on it. It, it has a, certainly a lot of talent. Um, by the numbers, it's, it's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not something that terrifies me. It, 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 it seems like it's kind of on par with our own. Right. Right? So, you know, I, I, I would kind of assume that it, those two, our power play and their power play, would saw off at about even and at least have a 5-on-5. Five five. Um, a significant advantage of 5-on-5. Five five. I would favor them in the series. Of course, you know, in any, in any series with any NHL team, there's no guarantee at all. Right? So... Yeah, the Leafs can easily lose to anybody, but... Exactly, and, and that's just part of the thing you have to... I don't want to say get comfortable with, because you're never really comfortable with, but you just have to acknowledge as, you know, that's just the reality of the NHL. This is not the NBA, where, you know, a 1-8 series in round one is a, almost a guaranteed win for the one seed. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so we've accepted that that's kind of how we're going to proceed, but it is ultimately, I think, a problem that the Jets are are like this. I also want to um, note something about their defensive heat map because I think a lot of people think, okay, sure they get, you know, outshot a hell of a lot, but they're shots from the outside. And I want to emphasize that's not really the case with Winnipeg. There are a lot of shots from the points, but there are also a ton of shots from point blank. And so maybe that suggests that it's shots and rebounds. Mm-hmm. And... I'm sure, you know, Winnipeg would argue in its own defense, hey, you know, those are coming off static plays that are attempts against a set defense. And maybe that's true, but the fact remains, those add up over time. You can't really just allow shot after shot after shot after rebound and not have it eventually catch up with you unless you have great goaltending from Connor Hellebuck. So, you know, maybe they'll get it, but I don't think it's enough. And, uh, yeah, if there's not a massive goaltending differential, I think the Leafs win a series pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Edmonton Oilers. So a good starting point with the Edmonton Oilers is to have two of the most dangerous players in the history of the sport. Uh, yep, th- that's it. that makes life easier. It <laughs> yeah. really does. That's 90% of the Oilers. It's like, <laughs> hey, they have McDavid and Dreisaitl. And, you know, you know it, we know it, but that's the big takeaway. Uh, the defense is not, I would say, great. It's better than Winnipeg's. Uh, Darnell Nurse is having a strong year. He's paired well with Tyson Berry. I feel like Darnell Nurse is having a real Morgan Riley 2017-2018 year. Or, or is it 2018-2019, sorry. Where, like, he's just getting points on everything and yeah. he's riding super hot? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, would, and like Riley, I, I think Nurse is a good player. It's just I think this is going to be his career year. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, and, y- you know, they did need somebody to have some sort of career year, whether through luck or skill or both. Because mm-hmm. uh, Oscar Clefbaum is dealing with long-term injuries that have his future somewhat clouded. Uh, and he's not expected to return this year. Uh, and Adam Larson is still there, uh, long after Taylor Hall has moved on from his end, the Hall for Larson trade. Larson is, you know, he's not 
elite or anything, but he can still slow the game down. And he still has some of that defensive impact, uh, as you will probably gather. Larson does not play that much with McDavid, because the two of them sort of have opposite purposes. Um, the bottom six is there to make nothing happen. And we've talked about this before. The Oilers would absolutely love to get to a zero goal differential with their bottom six. When neither they would. Dress- yeah. Because with, without McDavid and Dreisaitl on the ice currently, uh, they have scored 22 five-on-five goals and given up 35. Yeah. They kind of get slaughtered because, again, it's they're not very good. And so... We've talked about this before, but that part of the plan with the Oilers was, okay, the bottom six is going to get outplayed, but if they can play very cautiously, very, you know, very defensively, and really have as little happen as possible, it can be a winning proposition for us, even if they kind of lose on ratio. And that's sort of not quite worked out to the extent that it would need to, but... Yeah, uh, to compare with another... Uh, top-heavy team, which listeners will be very familiar with, the Toronto Maple Leafs. <laughs> Without Matthews and Tavares on the ice, the Leafs have scored 30 goals for and given up 29. Yeah. So winning and your minutes without them on, that's huge. Yeah, that, that's essentially the difference. And, you know, in both cases... So, at, funnily enough, um, the according to HockeyViz, the Oilers... Um, the Oilers are actually better defensively uh, without... Drysdale and McDavid, and the Leafs are without uh, Matthews and Tavares, mm. right? So they are trying. They are kind of slowing the game down. They they give up you know twelve percent less offense than an average uh, NHL defense would. Mm. So twelve percent better than the average NHL defense without Drysdale or McDavid on the ice. Um, the problem is the offense just completely goes to die. Exactly, they generate nothing, and so it's just hold on for dear life, basically. Yeah. And in a game where Dreisaitl and McDavid, for whatever reason, don't have it, then you're, you're really, really fighting uphill. Yes. And that's really what it's come down to. Now, you can't discount the advantage that comes from McDavid and Dreisaitl. It's really obvious, but we do have to emphasize it. They're really, really good. They can put up lopsided differentials. Mm-hmm. If you put out a line of Dreisaitl, McDavid, any carbon-based life form they will win their minutes handily. And some nights they will explode and score enough goals to win you the game by themselves. And that's the overhanging risk of any team that has to play the Oilers, is that McDavid at some point in his career is probably just going to go supernova and win a playoff series or two. He has that skill level. Dreisaitl also probably has that skill level. So you just have to hope your number doesn't come up and defend them as best you can. Um, they, the Oilers do have some more interesting wingers to go with that group than I think has been the case previously. They, Jesse Puglia-Yarvi has had a nice little return to the NHL year. And uh, Kaylor Yamamoto, we've talked about before, talented young player. So the basic underlying deal with the Edmonton Oilers is you have this super-powered top six going to put up margins on you. You have a bottom six that tries to have nothing happen. You have a kind of jury-rigged defense where the Tyson-Berry pairing plays with McDavid. High event, lots of points. Uh, The other defensemen tend to play more with other lines and are more on the the slow-the-game-down side of it. 
Goaltending is up and down, but Mike Smith has been very good this year in a twist I can't say I saw coming at all. I made fun of Ken Holland for giving $2 million to a 39-year-old goalie who hadn't been good in a few years. Yeah, the, the Oilers' um, goaltending, I think, on the season has been below average, but that's mostly dragged down by Koskinen, right? Smith has been good. Yeah, and if you'd asked me before the season, I would have absolutely said, look, Koskinen has more to offer. He's younger. He was competent last year when Smith wasn't, but Smith has been rejuvenated. Um, for whatever it's worth with regard to Mike Smith, he has a lot of personality, let's say, for a goaltender. Uh, I guess they all tend to have personalities one way or another. In the it's a polite way of saying he's an ac- he's a dick on the ice. Yeah, he's an asshole. Um, but maybe some of that fire, I guess, inspires the team or something like that. I don't know. But he's one of those goalies who... I think has a strong impact on the emotional bearing of the team. So make of that what you will. Uh, yeah, so if you're looking at this and you're the Toronto Maple Leafs, you're thinking, okay, if I can just saw off even close to even in the minutes that McDavid and Drysaddle are playing, I probably win. Like, if the Leafs, like, even get slightly outscored by those two guys but are able to clobber the bottom six like we know that they can, that should be enough. And if the Leafs can put together a third line, like, say, the hyman engvall of line has shown to be for a bit, and they can go toe-to-toe with, say, Leandro Seidel, even better, because that sets up John Tavares and William Nylander to hopefully feast on, say, the remains of Kyle Torres. And what we saw in the recent um, series against the Oilers, the last games of the season, of the regular season against the Oilers, was more or less exactly that. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I think it's quite capable of working. Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner are also a legitimate power versus power line that can probably stand right up to Connor McDavid and maybe beat him. So, yeah, I, I think the, th- the frightening prospect of the Edmonton Oilers is, look, those two guys could win the series. But mm-hmm. will they and probably? They're not? they're also dangerous together and dangerous apart. Like they're whenever in in a playoff series, um, whenever the Oilers are down in a high leverage situation, you can guarantee that you know twenty nine and ninety seven are coming out together, and that's even scarier. Like uh, in the recent games, they were playing together on that line with mm-hmm. I think Puljujarvi, and they had Turris, RNH, and maybe Yamamoto on the second line. Um, and that first line was just was just horrifying. Right? Like it was, it's just really, really scary to play against. Yeah. I wrote, what does Edmonton beating the Leafs in a series look like? And my answer was, remember the goal from the last game against the Oilers eight days ago, where Justin Hall and Jake Muzzin tried to defend McDavid and Dreisaitl and didn't even do that bad a job? And the resulting rush shot was a one-timer that Jack Campbell had basically no chance to stop? Edmonton beating the Leafs in a series is that goal happening over and over and over again. And... The scary thing about those players is that you can defend them not even badly, just imperfectly, and that's enough to give them an opening that they can exploit a decent percentage of the time. You know, if they play McDavid and Drosetto together for any long stretches, I'm expecting the Leafs to be pretty heavily underwater in those minutes, and you just got to make up the margin elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, if there's something encouraging, though... Leafs have distinctly better forward depth and a much stronger defense, I think, at this point. Yeah. 
Um, the other thing worth noting, Edmonton, of course, has a very good power play, as you would expect mm-hmm. with those two guys on it. Yes, they... I think when all is said and done, Edmonton is still one of the teams that I think can sustainably be better on the power play than Toronto. I'm not saying they will, but I think they've shown such a high level of performance for so long now, even when the rest of the team wasn't that good, that you have to say that that's probably a strength on their side. For, for what it's worth, the they do allow quite a, uh, quite a number of shots on their PK. Their PK doesn't seem to be very good mm-hmm. either. Which kind of tracks with Edmonton as a, as a team generally. They're not, they're not really a uh, great defensive team in the defensive zone. Which is interesting given what Dave Tippett was perceived as being as a coach before mm-hmm. he came to Edmonton. But yeah, I mean, it, they're so, they're an interesting team because they really are like a split personality team, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? As as you mentioned, they they are completely different when one of the two stars is on the ice. Yeah, and you can absolutely see the logic there. Like, why you would want to arrange the team this way. It's just that I think it still comes down to the baseline issue that despite having these two great players, they're only pretty good, not great. And that's sort of an indictment of all the management that Edmonton's had for the past decade. But, yeah, like, you really still see their shallowness coming back to haunt them. Mm -hmm. And we've said this a couple times on various podcasts, but um, McDavid... We've lumped McDavid and Dreisaitl together, but McDavid has had just an utterly brilliant season that has, as we talked about, removed some of the doubt of, you know, who is the best player in the, in the world. It, you know, this is the type of season that McDavid has really put his stamp on. Yeah. And I think he will likely and deservedly win the heart. Yeah, I think that that's extremely likely. And good for him. Yeah, you can't really make any objections to his game at this point. Um, just huge control of play and everything else. Yeah, the the you know the knock on him the last couple of years were, were his defensive results, which were genuinely poor, mm-hmm. right? And it wasn't just um, of course he wasn't just expected goals; it was actual goals too. Yeah, and it was quite striking. And they've now found an arrangement that seems to be working for them. And also, I'm not even sure it's a question of his defense getting better so much as his offense is now so world destroying that the puck just isn't there in the defensive zone often enough but that works you know that's certainly one way to go about things yeah uh yeah and so i also wrote what does toronto beating the oilers in a series look like and my answer is an article from mark Spector saying to be sure no one doubts mcdavid's production but his leadership is in question so stay tuned for that yeah and and i guess what it would look like on the ice is pretty similar to how the season series has looked, where the Leafs have, you know, largely um, succeeded in doing exactly what we outlined here. The McDavid and Dreisaitl groups have done a number on us, but not to the degree that it was insurmountable against the weaker parts of the Oilers roster. Yeah, I don't want to infer too much from the season series, because, you know, there's a difference between regular season and the playoffs and all that, but Mm -hmm. I think you'd be encouraged for sure by how the Leafs have handled Edmonton up to this point. So, yeah. Now, this week on Twitter, when I was teasing this episode, I said Montreal was actually legit good, and people were sleeping on them a little bit. And a lot of people said, I hate this, and you, shut up. Um, But I think Montreal is the most dangerous of these three teams. Yeah, and what it comes down to is... 
you know, we have a bias, and we've acknowledged this before. We, we have a bias for teams that do well at five on five. Mm-hmm. We think that's the most important part of the game. We think it's the most transferable part of the game. Uh, in the playoffs, uh, you know, if you believe that penalties, uh, that the refs put the whistles away and there are fewer penalties, that would naturally increase in importance. It's unclear whether that's actually true or not. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, regardless, it seems like a good strategy to be a strong NHL team is to be strong at the single biggest score state or sorry single biggest player state that exists which is five on five Mm -hmm. and unfortunately the Habs are very 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 good at five on five in fact they are possibly the best team in the league at five on five they have the highest five on five gold uh goals for percentage in the league yeah 61 percent above even you know the nuclear Colorado Avalanche and Tampa Bay Lightning and above the Toronto Maple Leafs yeah and that's something that I wanted to emphasize because I think people have this perception not inaccurately, of the Habs as a team that gets these terrific shot differentials and then the chances aren't really of the same quality that the stats say they are. But the Montreal Canadiens score goals at 5-on-5, the fourth best rate in the NHL. That's not chances or anything else. That's putting the puck in the net. And as Arvin just said, they win their minutes 5-on-5 by a lot, by more than anyone else in the NHL. They're not just dominating shots and chances. They are winning those minutes. Uh, Their power play is something that we've made fun of a lot in the past because it seemed to go back to the Shea Weber slap shot option. And I wouldn't say that it's recovered to being extraordinary, but it looks decent-ish now. And that's progress. Um, They don't even need it to be that great. It's just if it stops being sort of a bleeding weakness again... That helps because they have such a strong foundation, 5v5. Um, their power, the, sorry, their penalty kill is mediocre. Uh, Carey Price has recovered a little bit he, from uh, a rough start, but he's still not doing that great. But Jake Allen is doing really well. And so there's a clouding factor there of at some point, if the Habs get into a playoff series and Price isn't playing well, do they go to Jake Allen? who has a strong track record up to this point. Because again, that's replacing a weakness with a strength for them. And then finally, they have one weakness that is told again and again and again this year. And it's that they are a terrible 3v3 team. Or at mm-hmm. least record-wise. I'd, I'd even go further and say they're a terrible non-5v5 even strength team. They're also bad at 4 on 4 Yes. And I, the, Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Um, yeah, so they're, as I mentioned, their goals for percentage at 5-on-5 five five is 60%. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you include all even strength, it drops down to 56%. And remember, you know, you spend a lot less time at non-5-on-5 five five even strength than you do at 5-on-5. Five five. Imagine, how, so their, their, their goal differential at non-5v-5 even strength situations must be just horrific. Yeah. It's dragging down their stats at all, uh, at even strength so much. But how important is that really? Yeah. So that's something that I wanted to emphasize because I think a lot of people look at the Habs and they say they have nine loser points, which is a lot. It's the most in the NHL, uh, except for Dallas, who has 10. Um, But that's actually probably a reason that their record underrates them rather than the reverse. Because you see, in games that go past regulation, uh, the Habs have a winning percentage of one in nine, so 10%. 
that's the part of the game that's subject to a huge amount of randomness. Even if they're a really bad 3v3 team, you wouldn't expect them to be this bad, to only win 10% of the games that go past regulation. If you bump them up to 5v5, they are a very close second in the division in points percentage right now. I'm not saying you do that. You don't just give them points and wins. I'm saying the state where they're getting killed is A, one with a lot of randomness, and B, one that doesn't happen in the playoffs. So even if they are genuinely the worst 3v3 team imaginable, if they get to the playoffs, which they seem very likely to do, they don't have to worry about it anymore. Yep. Uh, I just quickly did the calculations um, on, on the goal differential, by the way. Mm-hmm. So in non-5v5 even strength situations, Montreal has scored uh, seven goals, four, and given up 14. That's incredibly bad. Like, yeah, if you get a score two to one, that's gross. That's really, really, really awful. And at five on five, you know, their five on five goal differential is um, 74 goals for 48 goals against. So that's what, 26 plus 26? It's, that's yeah. very, very good. Yeah. The Lightning are at plus 25, for example. Like, right. The Avs are at plus 30. Like, that's, that's the company they're keeping. That's the thing is that I think people are missing that the Habs are actually clowning fools. 5v5, they are doing really well. And on a note related to the overtime thing, they have a terrible record in one-goal games. Uh, A winning percentage of 0.214. Even if they're bad, again, you don't expect them to only win about a fifth of their one-goal games. Last year, they were uh, 0.405. The year before that, they were 500. Again, if they just move towards 500 in this stat that we know is kind of random... They are neck and neck with the Leafs, which is where, uh, you know, we said they would be. And we looked kind of dumb at the time because the Habs were spiraling and firing Claude Julian and everything else. But I really do believe that even if you think the Habs are a little overrated by 5v5 metrics because that's their strong suit, it's a really strong basis for a team. And you look at why aren't they at the top of the division. And one, they haven't played as many games as anyone else. But two, I think you can say that they've had a a fair bit of luck go against them at the wrong times. That probably won't continue. So you put all of that together, and I think that you're looking at a team that is going to get stronger in the playoffs. Simply because they can look to probably more 5v5, less special teams. And... Again, if they start relying on Jake Allen a little bit more, I think that that's another advantage that they have waiting for them. They have room to improve on that basis. Yeah, but the the question is, I mean, what odds would you have to get to bet money on Jake Allen being the game one starter in the playoffs? Yeah. 10 to 1? Yeah, 10 to 1 probably. Except the thing that I keep thinking is, okay, if Price suffers a nagging injury... Or if he's not 100%. It's one of those things where if he's the undisputed starter, he plays through it. And yet maybe the Habs are thinking, okay, in a case of a borderline call, we know we have a second option there. So if you ask me, you know, what are the odds that Jake Allen appears at some point in Montreal's playoff run? I think that they're better than 10 to 1. Maybe that's just me assuming that they'll come around to what seems to me like the obvious choice at some point and Price's contract be damned. But if they ever do it, it just looks like there's room to improve there. Because this team with really good goaltending is terrifying. So, 
yeah, I don't know if that's that's something that's going to happen or whether it's something we can count on. It's just it's a possibility that's lying out there. Yeah, they also got um, stronger with Eric Stahl. Yeah, yeah, he was a good ad, and you know he looked rough in Buffalo, but Buffalo is in hell at this point. So, yeah, I, I think that he's definitely going to suit them quite well. Add some center depth, uh, guy who can probably fit with the program. Mm. So, yeah, as as much as it pains me to admit, the Habs are the, the Habs are a dangerous team, and. Mm-hmm. You know, we hear all this talk about how the playoffs are a different game than the regular season. Um, and I think that's often used to say why skill teams are, quote-unquote skill teams, are less suited for the playoffs. And it often conveniently retrofits uh, skill teams that were successful in the playoffs to now being grit teams. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, see everyone's, uh, <laughs> or, or see everyone's, uh, I guess, attribution of the Lightning success in the playoffs last year to, um, you know, Blake Coleman and Pat Maroon, who were undoubtedly important parts, but, you know, I think Nikita Kucherov and Braden Point and Victor Hedman and, you know, Andre Vasilevsky probably had a little more to do with it. <laughs> uh, and, you know, similarly with the, with the back-to-back champ Penguins. But to the extent that, you know, the regular season playoffs are different, um, it's in that they have literally different rule sets. <laughs> and one of them involves that 3v3 is no longer a thing, and that undoubtedly helps the Habs. Mm-hmm. It really does. Um, and again, if you believe that refs put the whistle away, that should also help them because they're you know still not great on special teams. Five on five is really their thing. We've commented on this before, but the three other teams in the North besides the Leafs are quite interesting in that they all have really notable strengths and weaknesses relative to one another. They're not like similar versions of... Uh, of teams, mm-hmm. right? The Jets are shooting and goaltending based. The Oilers are special teams and shooting based. The Habs are almost entirely five on five, um, quantity based. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's it's interesting to see how that all pans out. And I guess to some extent, it reflects our biases as people who watch hockey as to what team we think is better. But the five on five quantity is really scary when you're when you're watching when you're watching your team go up against it yeah and we have vivid experience of that it's been a little bit less the case under sheldon keith but you can still remember uh those agonizing endless chips where the leafs get caught in their zone and the other team is working around the outside montreal is well suited to do that and i guess the thing that i'm trying to emphasize here is People are used to laughing off Montreal's stats because they shot so poorly that it didn't end up turning into a goals advantage that often. The Habs are now finishing at an average rate. Their shooting percentage is 15th in the NHL. That's uh, all they have to do. Yeah, and uh, if you look at expected goals, um, they're they're overshooting their expected goals, right? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Expected goals isn't based on a single season, which is why you can in a single in a single season you could have you know many teams, more than fifteen teams, overshoot their expected goals, mm-hmm. which seems to be happening this year. Um, but yeah, like they're you know they're overshooting their expected goals. Their their shooting quality in all strengths has actually been pretty good. It, it was of course buoyed by that really hot start and has come down a little bit since. But you know you don't throw away that hot start. Yeah, and it's been stabilizing around the middle of the NHL. And again, when you have a huge advantage in shots, even if you're just a mediocre shooting team, 
that's probably still enough. You just have to not be really bad at it like they were before. And so as much as it would be sort of fun to discard them, I really think that you have to take the Habs seriously as the biggest competition to the Leafs. I still think the Leafs are better. And it's worth noting the Leafs have really come into their own statistically the last couple months. Mm-hmm. It's been clouded by the fact that goaltending has actually lost them some games in that span. But in XG, Also clouded by the fact that we haven't faced the Habs. Yes, the that helps. <laughs> yeah, but in XG, the Leafs are cruising right now. And so the gap between Montreal and them is thankfully not enormous. Like, if the Leafs were just sort of a 50% XG team, and the Habs were 60, and the Leafs were trying to make up that whole gap with shooting, I would be more worried. But the Leafs are, you know, creeping into the mid-50s, and I think that seeing these two teams against each other, I expect the Habs to get the better chances, to get more shots, all that, but the gap shouldn't be so huge that it's fatal to Toronto. But I do think that um, if the Leafs win this series, and I would favor them to do so in seven games, but if the Leafs win, it does look like Montreal controls the play and the Leafs just end up having their skill tell. You know, they still have the four best players in the series against Montreal, probably. So. Yeah, I, I think that's really what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the Leafs have kind of blossomed into a pretty well-rounded uh, team it seems, mm-hmm. which isn't to say they're amazing at everything, but like their their overall shot suppression has gotten to the point where it's it's good enough that you're not automatically disqualifying them as a contender. Yeah. Um, because of, you know, how, how poor their shot suppression was, which is what it often was in previous years. Yeah, and I think that you can make a real case that the Leafs are moving in the direction of the team that they were supposed to be. And... I'm sort of back and forth on who constitutes the real contenders tier. Before the season, I was saying Tampa, Colorado, Vegas, and Boston. I think Boston is probably drifting out of that mm-hmm. direction. I would definitely still have Tampa and Colorado there, and obviously I think Vegas is really good. Yeah, and maybe the Islanders have, have come up into that. Yeah. Um, maybe the, the Hurricanes as well. Yeah. It's, yeah, there's... there's uh, there's a lot of good teams, but you know the advantage of this season is that you can be a little bit myopic, and you can just say, okay, I'm only focusing on these three teams in our division because that's all we have to play against until pretty deep. And if we get that far, you know, we'll learn about the other teams when it's necessary. Exactly. And the biggest thing is that there's so much randomness and variance in hockey that even though the Leafs are, I still think, the best team in the division, and I would favor them, it just can get kind of crazy. You know, even a series where you're pretty well favored, the odds tend to be something like 65-35. And so, yeah, I, I don't think that the Leafs are at the point where they're even dominating most teams to that degree, but I do think that they are better than any of these. It's just Montreal worries me the most because I think that they are the best suited for the playoff game. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... The Leafs have, according to Money Puck, the third highest odds of making um, the conference finals, mm. or the equivalent, like the final four this year. But it's only 39%, right? So, you know, over half the time, well over half the time, you know, the Leafs aren't going to do it, mm-hmm. even though they have the best chance to. Uh, funnily enough, but, uh, Montreal is at 33%, so not that far behind. That's fifth in the league. Yeah, I think that most places still give Montreal a lot of credit. 
Yeah, and, and I guess to an extent, it, it's well, it's a zero sum game, right? So by giving Montreal credit, you're implicitly not giving credit to Edmonton and Winnipeg, mm-hmm. who everyone thinks are kind of softer. But yes. uh, yeah, so it's an interesting contrast of styles, and we did this in reverse order. So the team that I would want to play most is Winnipeg, then Edmonton, then Montreal. Um, I if in the long shot event that Calgary or Vancouver were to sneak in. I think the Leafs would be a heavy favorite in either case, but it's very likely going to be one of these three teams. Yeah. So. Yeah. And my, my ideal situation is the Leafs face Winnipeg in the first round, beat them, and then Edmonton uses up their McDavid and dry settled juice against Montreal in the first round, and then the Leafs beat them. That, <laughs> that's, re- that's how I want things to go. It sounds perfect to me. So. Okay, cool. Um, So was there anything else that we wanted to discuss this week? Uh, No, don't think so. Great. Okay, cool. So we have a nice quick podcast for you then. Um, So thank you, everyone, for listening. You can catch all of mine and Fuleman's work at pensionplanpuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RVNATFuleman. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.